You really um, look like an anchor right now. <laughs> Police in Sacramento are looking for an arsonist with oddly shaped feet. <laughs> I'm Zach Davis. Okay, Go. sorry. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the unapologetically young, eagerly hip, and wildly lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. <laughs> and Zach Davis. That's so funny. <laughs> so I, I, I was telling Ashley that I was going to try something different this week, where, like you, instead of saying hello, I just go, and you know, I was on the train this morning, <laughs> but I got nervous and just went with my usual, hey, guys. <laughs> hey, I'm not saying it takes a lot of courage and creativity, but... A little. <laughs> so I understand. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Olga. Great to be with you. Hi, Zach. Uh, How you doing? I'm great. I uh, just got back from a whirlwind trip to London Ooh, uh, yeah. in Amsterdam for the I Royal I didn't wedding. know that you were such a like fan of the, the royals. I, w- I am not typically. So more on this later. Uh, <laughs> there's more to come. on. Yes. It actually relates to my consolation for this week. Uh, but um, my girlfriend Amanda had been there for a couple weeks for uh, her job and i decided to go over sort of towards the end of her visit which happened to coincide with the royal wedding there you go and you brought us back uh, uh presents right? yes i <laughs> brought back uh these were requested by uh our engineer uh angelo they're jelly babies okay look like weird snowmen yeah um but we're gonna try them see how they okay. how they taste mm. questionable mm. it's weird take it's a. I don't know if I like it, if I hate it or love it. It feels. I'm, it's like a jelly bean slash a gummy bear, but it doesn't know what it wants to be, and correct. it's really throwing me off. I want more artificial sweeteners. I'm really into it, except for like the weird dusty thing on the outside. Yeah, like, not sure what that's about. That's why I thought it was going to be sour, but it's not. Um, all so, right. Well, thanks, Zach. Yeah, no problem. Uh, there's more where that came from. If Angelo hasn't eaten all of them in this in the control room, uh, and but, we're also drinking, right? Yeah, yes. what's on tap, Zach? So this week we are drinking wine from Washington State. Uh, the wine is called Substance. Uh, I didn't know this, but the uh, Washington State is the second largest wine producing state in the country. I did not know that. I wouldn't have guessed Washington. No, and me neither. I would not either. Um, and we have this uh, wonderful wine because our guest this week is Lieutenant Governor Cyrus Habib, the Lieutenant Governor of Washington and the President of the Washington State Senate. Um, so we get into not just wine, but we also talk to him about what exactly a Lieutenant Governor does, what it means to be in politics in 2018 and his and how his faith has helped him in this journey. Yeah. Um, and we're very grateful that he brought this wine. He, he made a pretty funny joke it's called substance and he said it's because we have very substantive <laughs> conversations on this show which i appreciate yes yeah. Oh, yeah. Pun, pun pun drinks are always the best <laughs> drinks yeah cyrus is really an amazing person and also uh, a millennial uh, millennial working in politics he's a three-time cancer survivor uh he's been fully blind since he was eight years old um his parents immigrated to the united states from iran before he was born um and he's the first and only iranian american to hold a statewide elected office in the united states um so very accomplished and he's a fan of jesuitical yeah, <laughs> and he's a, he loves us yeah and also like really great to chat mm-hmm. with he was mm-hmm. great to be with um he was in the studio um so really looking forward to sharing that conversation with you guys um but first uh this episode of jesuitical is sponsored by pope francis a man of his word written and directed by three-time academy award nominee wim wenders the film is a personal journey with pope francis rather than a biographical documentary about him for tickets or group sales visit pope 
All right, now it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. First, I guess we have to talk about this wedding thing. Even yep. though I, I, didn't, I didn't watch it. I didn't watch it either, <laughs> despite my mom trying to force me to watch it with her in Spanish. I did not. I avoided it. I avoided it. Uh, I was there. So I was in London for yeah. the royal wedding. We went to this garden party, uh, which I guess is something you do yeah. in London. Yeah. Uh, our producer, Eloise, can confirm or deny that later. Um, but... I wanted to focus on one aspect of the story was uh, Episcopal uh, Bishop, Bishop Michael Curry, uh, was asked to, to preach at the royal wedding. He's the fir- He was the first American uh, to do so. Right. Um, and Bishop Curry is the first African-American bishop to lead uh, the Episcopal Church in the United States, which is in a loose communion with the Church of England. So that's how that all fits together. I guess we should say that this was a wedding between Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, yes. who is an American and is uh, biracial. That's right. true. I guess not everyone is following this uh, the way I certainly was not until I was there. Um, I tend to be sort of down on these things, but Bishop Curry's sermon was straight fire. Yeah. Yeah. It, despite not watching, I did read it and it was really, really great. Like the whole the power of love was just fantastic yeah Yeah. and he quotes this was surprising to many catholic listeners he quoted um the jesuit theologian and paleontologist pierre teilhard de chardin so bishop curry was in the middle of talking about how uh chardin talks about how when humans discovered fire it was like the world's greatest invention it Mm -hmm. allowed us to illuminate things invent things do all kinds of uh make remarkable strides and advancements humanity and technology and all these different things and if uh, Chardin wrote that if we could harness the power of love the same way we harnessed fire, it would similarly revolutionize the world. Um, and he said, and he did this in a very charismatic way. The whole sermon was just boiled down to the power of love rooted in the Gospels and what that meant in terms of marriage, um, but also in a larger construct. Right. But not everyone was super impressed because uh, they Chardin, is that correct? Chardin. Chardin. Um, he had some unpublished writings that were kind of problematic. Yeah, so it, people are now reassessing his legacy uh, because of some of his evolutionary theories mm-hmm. tend towards e- eugenics, right. eugenics um, which is super problematic. So there are a lot of theologians trying to figure out where exactly Chardin fits, mm-hmm. um, both in the uh, scientific community um, and also in the religious community. So, you know, not everyone was super uh, taken by uh the Chardin reference, but not everyone was super, didn't know how to react exactly to uh, Bishop Curry's uh, demeanor. Charismatic. His charismatic. Uh, <laughs> really? I mean, royal weddings tend to be sort of stuffy, uh, traditional. White. Uh, very white. <laughs> super white. Um, and to have a black man preaching in this setting, I mean, I was feeling it. I mean, I I was sort of just like, wow, I can't believe this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at this party I was at, people were just uncomfortably like laughing at things that like weren't funny. I mean, mm. in the ca- they were doing camera pants to members of the royal family, like just sort of sitting there, like what is happening? And that's a little bit funny, but mm-hmm. I was just like, wow, they had no idea how to take this. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, it's like even even like but you mentioned Zach that the message was about love, and a lot of the images that he evoked were like. He talked about Jesus. He talked about slaves during America's antebellum period and even Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I think a lot of people would not have expected to see to hear those things in in that kind of like white space. No. And it got me thinking that we should I mean, like of all the white spaces that would be, you know, really troubled in, mm-hmm. in good ways uh, by having someone like Bishop Curry preach in, in their spaces as well. Um, so. I don't know. That's something I think uh, we miss out on a lot uh, in the church in the United States um, because Sunday's often still one of the most segregated hours in America. 
What's next, Olga? So on Pentecost, which was this past Sunday, Pope Francis announced that he will be creating 14 new cardinals. And this is going to happen next month on June 29th. And they're from all over the world, right? Correct. So six of the 11 are European, three are Italian, and the others come from Iraq, Pakistan, Japan, Peru, and Madagascar. Mm. So the countries you mentioned, Iraq, Japan, Madagascar, and Pakistan, they have had cardinals in the past, but as of but right now, they hadn't had any uh, cardinals. And we should say this is important because you might not know this, but the cardinals are both, you know, high-ranking officials in the church, but they also pick the next pope. Right, right. And this is significant because it really um, puts into action Pope Francis's desire to have the church um, be less European, um, be more concerned with the peripheries and people who have traditionally not been represented at the Vatican. So our next story also comes from the Vatican. I feel like this was such a busy it week was. for it was Catholic really, news. Really busy. Like I went on vacation <laughs> and I came back and I was like, oh my goodness, there's a lot to catch up on. Right. Um, and so Pope Francis made really big news this week um, after Chilean uh, sexual abuse survivor Juan Carlos Cruz uh, shared uh, snippets of his personal private conversation with Pope Francis, where Pope Francis told him that uh, being gay doesn't matter and God loves you and God made you this way. Yeah, and this came in the context of um, we've talked a lot about the uh, sex abuse scandal in Chile on the show. Um, and last week, uh, survivors as well as uh, 34 Chilean bishops went to the Vatican to have meetings with Pope Francis. Well, and the survivors met with him first. I thought yeah, that was right. actually really important. Yeah. That, mm-hmm. like, he, Pope Francis met with the survivors first, yeah. listened to their stories before talking with all of the bishops. Yeah. Right, and right. then all of the bishops, uh, after their uh, three days of meeting with Pope Francis, offered their resignations. Um, every single one. Every single one. In yep. Chile. But well, what, what, so every single bishop that was at the Vatican, not every single bishop in okay. Chile. Correct. But this week, we're not going to focus on the resignations. We're going to pivot and talk about why these comments that Juan Carlos has shared are so significant. And they came in the context of a conversation where he was telling Pope Francis that the bishops, um, in trying to discredit his stories and accusations, um, used his um, homosexuality as like a reason he couldn't be trusted. Um, so to have the Pope to respond to that and say, no, uh, God made you this way. The Pope loves you. God loves you um, is a really important example of Pope Francis really listening um, and uh, taking it, victims' stories seriously. And it marks like a very a pastoral model almost for the mm-hmm. church, right, Olga? Uh, yes, correct. And one of the things that our national correspondent, Michael Lachlan, and Father James Martin have mentioned on Twitter is that he is setting a good pastoral example because now he's allowing people to move away from sort of the homophobia that is often that people often like preach against LGBT Catholics, you know, because he's allowing them to be like, look, this is not something that people choose. This is just who people are and God loves them, you know? Yeah, this is kind of vintage Pope Francis saying something that, you know, he's not challenging church teaching or changing church teaching. And it's something he has said before to um, to other gay Catholics. Um, so but he's saying it in a way that like, you know, is is different. Um, so people notice. But then there's also often a counter reaction that, you know, OK, you can say these nice things about um, LGBT Catholics. But as long as the catechism doesn't mm-hmm. change, um, there are still some who are are going to feel excluded. I think the message that God loves you unconditionally is like really radical for anyone to hear, right. um, but especially members of like the LGBT community, communities that have been marginalized traditionally. And so this is just another great story and example that Pope Francis is setting. 
So our next story comes out of Washington. Um, Sister Judy Byron. Washington State. Washington State, correct. Yes, Washington State. It's a very Washington episode today. Um, So Sister Judy Byron of the Adrian Dominican Order of Nuns in Seattle is being described as the orchestrator of the first activist-led shareholder revolt at an American gun manufacturer. Um, So after the shooting in Sandy Hook in 2012, which left 20 children dead, uh, Sister Byron and other nuns in her order began buying stock in two of the biggest publicly um, traded gun manufacturers, Sturm, Ruger and American Outdoor Brands. So what they do is first they buy stock in these companies. They reach out to CEOs or to shareholders to meet with them. And then their goal is to not to ban guns, but they want these manufacturers to care about gun safety. Um, And she says that most of the time these resolutions are not successful. However, after Parkland, after the tragedy in the high school in Florida, one of the biggest investors in Sturman Ruger actually told the CEO that they had to listen to the nuns resolutions. So, yeah. And they're trying to get the company to do things like track incidents Mm -hmm. of violence that uh, involve involving its firearms to reveal what it's done to make guns safer, including research on smart gun technology and report on the risk that gun violence poses to uh, the company's reputation and finances. Um, And so nuns, again, leading the way. It's interesting because like a lot of people um, divesting from companies is a typical way of using the market to influence uh, private companies, moral uh, movings. But these nuns are actually buying into these companies in order to have more of a say. So it's just an interesting tactic in itself. What's next, Zach? So this Friday, May 25th, which might be when you're listening to this episode when it comes out, Ireland is voting on a ballot measure, a referendum, that would overturn the Eighth Amendment of its constitution, which effectively bans abortion. Correct. Uh, So this this is is a referendum on whether or not Ireland's going to liberalize abortion access across the country. But first, for those of our listeners who might not know, what is a referendum? All right. So this is there. They are taking this decision to the people. People will go to the polls and vote. This is actually the sixth time that they've um, had this referendum on abortion um, since the amendment was passed in 1983. Um, So unlike the U.S., where abortion was legalized kind of like top down through the courts in uh, the court Supreme Court case, Roe versus Wade, um, it's it's up to the people. And so, so, like I said, this is the sixth time, um, but it is looking like it's going to be repealed. Uh, the polls are uh, tending that way. Mm-hmm. Um, the leaders of both the major political parties are in favor of repeal. Um, but it seems like the polls have actually narrowed in recent days. Yeah, no, so- People don't really... It's a toss up either way. And it's also definitely a generational thing. Um, Younger people are much more in favor of repeal and us young folk are notorious for not voting. Um, Mm -hmm. So there there's also that factor. Um, But one thing I wanted to talk about, uh, Ross Douthit, our guest last week, had a really um, sharp column in The New York Times this weekend talking about it. His column was called The Irish Exception, and he talks about kind of the tragedy. You know, there are two tragedies if if the amendment is uh, repealed, one, that abortion will be made more accessible um, in Ireland, but also that Ireland had kind of been this exception in terms of European countries that they had, you know, abortion was very rare, um, but they also had very strong pro-family, pro-woman policies. Um, Gender equity is, uh, you know, very high in Ireland. Um, So it challenges this assumption that, like, you know, you have to have... Uh, access to abortion for women to become equal in right. society, which is a very American Western mm-hmm. idea, right? Yeah. So to to lose that um, as an example to point to of a pro life, pro woman, pro family country um, 
you know, that would be a setback, I think, for the pro-life movement in this country. Definitely. And it sort of it seems like it's bucking the mold of, you know, Ireland is sort of liberalizing politically um, in terms of other culture war issues like um, LGBT issues. Um, they they elected their first uh, openly gay prime minister. Mm-hmm. They legalized same sex marriage. Um, it, it, but abortion still seems to be this like area that people have a lot of mixed feelings on. Yeah, and it but it's often like lumped together with like all progressive issues. Like progress means yeah, progress in all those areas, and then inevitably abortion, which I wish <laughs> was not how we framed that debate. Mm-hmm. And obviously the Catholic Church has been very involved in trying to uh, prevent this repeal from getting passed. Um, And unfortunately, the Catholic Church in Ireland has lost a lot of credibility um, because of the sex abuse crisis. And it's just not seen as a credible uh, voice. So it's it's a good reminder that if if the Catholic Church wants to be able to influence the discussions we have about abortion, they need to be. Um, you know, protecting vulnerable people in all walks of life. So today we're excited to welcome Lieutenant Governor Cyrus Habib. He is an American politician, lawyer, and professor and is the 16th and current Lieutenant Governor of Washington, Washington State that is. Welcome to Jesuitical. The real Washington. Thank the you so much. The real Washington. Good to be here with you. So just to be clear, how should we re- address you during this interview? Lieutenant Governor or... I would love it if you called me Cyrus. Okay, cool. Yeah. So we'll address Lieutenant you, Governor Cyrus. is just a lot of syllables. Yeah. yeah. And you can't Do you ever like... go by LG? Yeah. People sometimes, people will be like LG. Yeah. I like the, LG. Like, cool. in, it's, cool but it's more like in third person they might say the lg was here that's cool. uh, a the real lg to your face so, so next week we can talk about how yeah LG was remember here. back when the lg was was gave such a great interview yes. yeah. yep. so so what what does a lieutenant governor do in the state of washington we know we know it's a little different in every state but what do you do cyrus yeah it's different in every state so um in 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 our state in washington the lieutenant governor is president of the senate so kind of the the analog to the Speaker of the House. I run the chamber, I call on senators, um, and I do play a role in deciding which measures get voted on as well. Then I I fill in for the governor whenever he leaves the state. Uh, So for most governors, that's about 60 to 70 days a year. Because even if he leaves for, like, even if he goes over to Portland, uh, which is just across for those who you know, don't know, just across the border from the Washington, Washington State. DC bubble. Right. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's, so even if he goes, you know, for, for half an hour, uh, I'm the governor during that time. Uh, and then I also run my own uh, small agency, the Office of the Lieutenant Governor, and we focus on uh, a few different things, in- including um, access to higher education, uh, international trade and economic development, and disability and veteran uh, uh, issues. Have any like crises happened while you were acting governor? No, and I'd I'd like to just take a moment to recognize that that uh, w- during every time I've been lieutenant, go- I've been acting governor, nothing has ever gone wrong. Yes, uh, that's right. in the state of Washington. So, so oh, great yeah, record, on great that. record on that, <laughs> undefeated. Um, but it does happen. I mean, for my predecessor was acting governor when um, we had a, a terrible mudslide um, that uh, the 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 president called a state of emergency. Um, 
and sent in, um, you know, FEMA folks. I mean, it was a, it was a big deal. And I, I can't remember where the governor was at the time, but the lieutenant governor had to basically manage the whole situation. So, so we do get trained and, and uh, are prepared to do that. Yeah. And so can you tell us a little bit about your journey to getting to be the lieutenant governor? You've you're you've done a lot in your in your three decades. <laughs> well, you know, yes. how old are you? You're only I'm 36. OK. Yeah. All right. 36. And you've been like every um, kind of scholar there can yeah. be. Rhodes Scholar, Truman Scholar. I've spent I <laughs> have scholar. I have, um, you know, I, I was pretty uncertain about what I wanted to do when I when I grew up and I still am figuring it out. Uh, but I knew, so I went through a period where I wanted to be an English professor. Um, and so I studied uh, English literature. I, I went and got a graduate degree um, in post-colonial English literature. Uh, I then decided with a little bit of prodding from my parents um, that maybe I should take all that love of writing and reading and um, and kind of convert it or leverage it into a professional degree. So I went to law school um, and, and I became really passionate about um, representing those whose voices hadn't been heard. Um, I did a good amount of that in, in, in law school. Um, I went to a private law firm, but I, I got to do a lot of pro bono work. Um, and then as I did that, and I, especially after President Obama was elected, and I, I kind of got it in my head that maybe someone with a Middle Eastern sounding name might actually be electable, mm-hmm. um, I uh, decided when there was a vacancy in the state House of Representatives, I decided to to run for it. And, you know, there were a couple of things. One is that I, uh, you know, people with disabilities, uh, so your, your listeners may not know um, yet, but I, I became blind when I was eight years old due to childhood cancer. Um, and uh, I, I often joke that because that was in 1989, it does mean that all eight years I could see. All eight of those years took place in the 1980s. So all my visual memories are still from the 80s. So everyone still looks <laughs> yeah. like Cindy Lauper and Boy George. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty fantastic. crazy. Yeah. Is there a decade you'd rather have your memories from? Like looking back? No, I think the 80s. Uh, look, I think the 80s, if you're going to have kind of um, visual memories that will last a lifetime, mm-hmm. uh, I think the 80s are kind of nice, big, and sensational. Very evocative. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Um, that's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, like, like. I remember going into like a restaurant with my parents as a kid um, in Maryland, and there were like electric stars. Um, so, yeah, that's that's something to keep with you. Um, so, so I so I grew up with a disability, and and as a result, um, you know, my life outcomes could have been very different. Um, if my public schools had not been well-funded, um, if my parents hadn't taught me to and, and advocated for me and taught me to advocate for myself, and if it weren't for state services that I received. So as I kind of grew up and grew older, I realized there's so many people that rely on these services and that rely on our public schools and, and who's, I mean, you know, there's, you know, obviously there's, there's uh, every year just in my state, 1.1 million uh, kids in the public school system. Um, a good percentage of them have some kind of disability, uh, and so I wanted to run for the legislature to work on those issues and to maybe bring a kind of a different perspective to the legislature. Not, not just someone who cares about these things, but someone who's actually been a recipient of those services. And would you say there's a a discrepancy between the number of people with disabilities in the legislature versus the number of constituents with disabilities? Oh, I mean, it's it's 
it's massive. I mean, I, I, I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of legislators out of 147 in Washington who self-identify as having a disability. Um, and uh, yeah, like there, there's, there's, you know, there's one legislator who has hearing loss in one year. Um, you know, so I'm not minimizing any of that, but, but there are not, uh, given that, you know, there are over 50 million Americans uh, with a disability, uh, it's. I think it will be, uh, of probably of all minority groups, it will probably be the one that is underrepresented the longest, yeah. um, because there is a mix of, you know, uh, you know, with with a lot of other discrimination, um, it's it's basically just perception, right? It's just it's just bigotry, uh, a lack of education. With disability, there are actual um, costs to a commitment to inclusion. So, for example, uh, as lieutenant governor, I, I, I mentioned that I serve as president of the Senate, so I call on senators to speak. Uh, well, how do I know which one wants to be recognized? Uh, other than the fact that politicians basically always want to speak. Um, <laughs> you know, so the way it would normally happen is a senator stands up and the, the lieutenant governor would see them and, and call on them. Um, well, that obviously wasn't going to work. And so we thought about, well, should we have like a staffer just, you know, sit up there and just like whisper the name of every person. It, it just seemed so wasteful of a human being's time and labor, right? Mm -hmm. So we created a system where there's a touchscreen on every senator's desk. And when they want to speak, they stand and press this, uh, you know, this button on their screen that says request to speak. It sends their name up to a computer where I'm standing at the front of the chamber, and it is presented on a Braille display in real time. Mm. So I can see, you know, I can feel in Braille, you know, Senator so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so, and then I can call on them in the order that makes sense for the debate. But that costs money to install. And so what would a world look like? What would a public education system look like if we treated every kid like they were the president of their own Senate, right, in their classroom? Yeah, so that's a concrete change that you were able to bring because of your life experience. Um uh, to the Senate, is there is there something a piece of legislation or a change you've made um, either in the schools in Washington or uh, that tried to like give yeah. those benefits to other? Yeah, so other in people? the right, so in the in the arena of um, of of kind of disability rights and um, and equity, one of the things that was made known to me and which kind of resonated in my own personal life was that um, you know you have to qualify for disability accommodations when you go to um, uh, college. And uh, so what was happening, though, was that you had students who would go to a community college and then transfer, they'd want to transfer to a university, um, and they'd have to go back and do all the qualifications all over again, right? To go to a doctor, to maybe get tested, to do all these things, um, just to continue studying. Uh, and, you know, you know, it seems like a small barrier, but already... Uh, you know, people with disabilities are facing so many challenges, you know, even just getting the, their transit figured out to get to school, um, that it really didn't seem to make any sense. Like, like I'm not going to be any less blind in September right. um, <laughs> when I transfer to the University of Washington than in June when I'm at, you know, uh, Everett Community College. So uh, so we said, let's change that. And, and of course, you know, it's tough to do even small things when there are institutional players. Um, so we, we began a process and, and uh, instructed all of these institutions to create one universal common system for all these kids. So, so there's kind of targeted things like that on a higher level I would say where my experience 
has informed the work I'm doing um, is around the work we're doing on higher education. Um, and I know this will be near and dear to your uh, lay, but you know, work with Jesuit hearts um, <laughs> is that um, you know there's a, there's a sentence that I hear a lot from politicians in both parties, uh, and that sentence is quote college isn't for everyone. And and you hear it, and it's not said you know with malice. Um, it's said with oftentimes a lot of compassion. Uh, but when you ask that person whether they themselves went to college, you know, it turns out that they did. Uh, and then when you ask them what they do for a living, it turns out they do something that requires a college degree. And then when you ask what their kids are doing, what their plan is for their kids, they're also sending their kids to college or plan to. So it's so then it's like, who are you talking about, right? Who are these people for whom college isn't necessarily for? Um, and I think we know that that could have been me. Um, you know, it's kids in who may be from communities of color uh, or, or rural white areas or tribal country or uh, kids with disabilities. Um, and so we are really working hard in my office to try to turn that theory on its head and to say, let's give every kid the belief in themselves and the preparation and the access to go to college. And then, you know what? If they're sitting there, they've got college admissions letters, you know, acceptance letters and the money to pay for it. And, and then they decide, I don't want to go to college. More power to them. You know what I mean? Then they're making right. a decision from a place of strength. Um, but, you know, it, it always baffles me when people say, you know, I talked to this 15-year-old kid and she just doesn't think college is for her. She just doesn't want to go. And I'm like, well, you know what? She wasn't born that way, right? That yeah. kid has had 15 years of the world telling her what she's good for. Yep. So, um, not to mention you know, all the, you know, everyone ha has figured out what they want or should or should not do at 15. Right. 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 Exactly. <laughs> then I'm really in trouble. Here I am 21 <laughs> years later, still under it. So, speaking of sort of like resistance, w w have you encountered resistance in the legislature to uh, these types of initiatives and programs that you want to put forward or even to implementing a system that uh, costs money where you can, you know, know which uh, senators want to speak and whatnot. Yeah, I, I would say, um, so I, I tend to, to group um, political pushback into three categories. Um, one is um, we agree on the problem, we agree on the solution, but not on its relative level of priority. Like, Ideally, we would give every kid free preschool. Like we all agree that that would be a good thing to do, um, but we've got to do this other thing over here. There's finite amount of money, and, and we've got lots of problems. The second category is we agree on the problem, but we disagree on the solution. You know, Democrats and Republicans may both agree that we need to grow jobs uh, or that, like, you know, North Korea is a threat, but there's just different solutions um, that people feel very strongly. And then the worst situation is where like, you don't even agree that this is a problem, mm -hmm. right? Th those are the most bitter um, fights. And, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, with this issue of college isn't for everyone, um, it does sometimes fall in that category because there's actually people who think that it is elitist um, and, and wrongheaded and actually cruel to young people to force them into thinking that college is something that they ought to do such that they would think of themselves as failures if they didn't go. Um, and so what I've really tried to do 
um, because I, I started out like being a lawyer, I started out wanting to argue about this all the time with people. Um, and I sometimes still will do that, but then I realized, you know what, there's a lot of room for us to work together. So you might think that an apprenticeship is a better, um, is a better model than, than a traditional college. And I don't need to prove you wrong for us to figure out a way for kids or for anyone to get college credit when doing an apprenticeship. Because then we both win, right? Then, like, you're giving, you know, you're kind of elevating um, the the trades um, and and opening pathways that are non-conventional and aren't the kind of ivy-covered, you know, quadrangle reading Aristotle. Um, but then I also am, am, I feel satisfied that if that job is made obsolete because of technology or trade uh, or the person gets an injury or something like that, that, you know, they'll have... A pathway to a college degree mm-hmm. um, and be able to be resilient in the economy. And um, so I'm challenging myself to try to find more ways to, when there is pushback, to, to, kind, of, um, to kind of work within the ideology of, of, the, of, the, of my interlocutor. So would you say, Cyrus, that your faith has a lot to do with that? With you, you're very passionate about the work that you do, but do you think the ability to kind of meet people instead of just running away from this pushback has a lot to do with your faith and how does it how does your faith overall just sustain you in the way I think that you wanting do? to do that I think you have to first you have to want to do it mm-hmm. you know what I mean so I think that definitely comes um, from from my Catholic faith and and I would say increasingly um, thanks to father Martin and and others uh, from the kind of the the Ignatian influence of of discernment and uh, and even the process of praying the examine and thinking through, you know, were there opportunities that I missed? What was that person really saying when we had that conversation? Were they actually was there a way that that could have gone differently? Um, so I definitely think that that almost on a meta level um, is is helpful because. You know, you get so passionate about the things that you're working on that sometimes you actually enjoy the conflict, um, mm-hmm. and it can feel really satisfying to score points. Yeah. It sounds um, like you're yeah. saying Ignatian spirituality could be like the way we solve political polarization in this country. <laughs> I think it's a. I think it'd be. I, I think it could be a huge part of the solution. I think, and whether it's whether it's the, the spiritual exercises or other traditions for other folks um just the, the being contemplative being reflective thinking about um how did that encounter go yeah pope uh, francis has said that politics is a noble activity which i think for a lot of people who maybe aren't looking at state politics but are looking at what's coming out of washington can kind of be a surprising thing to hear um could could you talk a little bit about like what how how state or local politics um, differs from like the kind of toxic partisanship we see on the national stage and like maybe some lessons we could gain from that. <laughs> yeah, it it's better. I don't know that I would say it's so much better that it is a um, a model um, because we definitely have toxicity in um, in state government as well. Um, I think having a shorter session. Uh, you know, so most legislatures are not full time. They're not full, you know, year round, um, I think means that you get people who are not, um, at least at that point, uh, only career politicians. Um, and I think that 
ironically, um, and I don't. I want to be very careful because I'm not. I, I don't oppose um, transparency into the federal government. Um, like I, I, I think C-SPAN does amazing work. I think all, we need much better and more reporting. And you guys do some of that reporting and others. But you know, at the federal level, because it's so high profile, particularly the Senate, right, where you know they're almost celebrities in in some ways. Um, you know, there's there's such an incentive to um, to uh, be posture. the to posture and to be the yeah I'm being very yeah. careful right you know <laughs> or, but to or be, like to, play a character right like you are you have a brand and you've got to stick exactly to it. Yeah. exactly so you know like Senator Warren she has her brand Senator Sanders has his brand um, you know and and the system kind of incentivizes that um, right now um, and it doesn't mean that those people don't have legitimate uh, policies or ideas um, but. I think what you find as you get to lower levels of government is um, people who basically do the work, not expecting to have, you know, 5,000 retweets because they had some really clever, you know, uh, you know, line on Trump, right, for the day. Do you think so. there's something the media could do better to, like, disincentivize that? Or what? To, what's a good type of transparency that the media can work towards i think doing profiles on senators and and representatives and and other elected officials at different levels who are doing really good work um you know uh for example b both of our senators uh patty murray and maria cantwell um in washington state i think are are workhorses you know they're not show horses um i mean patty murray brokered with Paul Ryan um, the, the the most kind of significant bipartisan budget deal of the decade. She brokered with Lamar Alexander a big education bill, bipartisan education reform bill um, that both sides um, could be proud of. You know, but people don't know Patty Murray that well nationally, right? And there's a reason because she's working so hard um, and she's not running for president. Um, and so I think the more we can do profiles of of, of those folks, because um, what you see already now, right, is profile. I mean, you guys, I'm sure, are seeing this, profiles of potential presidential nominees. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. It's already been happening. To someone. Right. Yeah. right, it's already been happening, and we're two and a half years away from that election. So do, so. You, do you have any models as far as politicians who you think do a good job of integrating their faith in public life? Joe Biden. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I was why. just talking with Father Malone about that earlier. I mean, he's just so real. Mm -hmm. You know, he's just so real. He's... Um, he is, he is an imperfect human being. Mm -hmm. He's a flawed human being. We all are, right? Mm -hmm. But he, he acknowledges it, and even kind of with humor, sometimes with remorse, um, his shortcomings. But he just is so present and real um, with constituents, which you know, for eight years meant all of us, um, and. Um, and I and I think that's what allows him to speak to Americans across racial uh, and and gender lines and and so many other different um, you know dividing lines. One final question for you: um, If you could canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or non-Catholic, who would it be and why? I'm ready for this uh, as <laughs> a listener, as an avid listener. Um, we love to hear that. Yeah, by the way. yeah. That so many of our guests are just this. like always stumped when we ask yeah. that question. Yeah. Uh, so we're excited. Go ahead. Um, Desmond Tutu. I'm, oh, I'm okay. going. I'm going. 
I'm going with an Anglican. Okay. Um, <laughs> but it's going to be okay because when when the Anglicans come into full communion with Rome, that's right. People yeah. have uh, baptized will... Cleopatra, so I think uh, we're on safe ground yeah. with Desmond Tutu. <laughs> yeah, although, but maybe not. I mean, maybe it's more controversial for right. some people. Might be. I mean, I think there are elements of of um, of his positions that I, mm-hmm. I'm sure would be controversial. Uh, I know are controversial with some Catholics um, because there was an there was a. Uh, an incident where uh, he was invited to, sp- to speak at Gonzaga, um, and there were Catholics who uh, agitated against that uh, because of some of his views. Uh, but but you, you think they're wrong because? Well, no, but I but 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 to my mind, um, when I think about a person living r- right now uh, who had such a powerful effect on a country. Um, a, even a continent, um, the and the world through advocating nonviolence, um, and just has lived a grace-filled and faith-based life, and managed to navigate politically difficult situations, including uh, life-threatening ones, but done it in a way that elevates God. Um, I think uh, Desmond Tutu is prime ready for uh, canonization. All right. Awesome. All right, Saint, Saint Tutu. Tutu. Saint Tutu. <laughs> right. Saint awesome. Tutu better. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Cyrus, thank you so much for coming on the show. This means a lot. And where can people learn more about uh, your work or perhaps maybe some Washington state wines that you provided us with? <laughs> yeah, I was glad. Yeah. Where was the plug? Yes. So uh, it's right, right here. here. <laughs> it's right here. So Cyrus brought us a gift, uh, wine from the state of Washington, which I was surprised to learn that the second most second largest wine producing state in the country yeah and we are we're drinking substance yeah. yes i Cabernet. love the name <laughs> yes um and uh but yeah i'm i'm on facebook and twitter um at cyrus habib and my official account which has kind of um less snarky uh but more <laughs> lieutenant gubernatorial content is at <laughs> waltgov okay so that's your double life that's, that's right okay. that's right <laughs> awesome thank you so much yeah, thank you, thank you, you so much us. cyrus thanks guys All right, now it's time for some listener feedback. So we got an email this week uh, about our Ross Douthat interview. We expected that this might challenge a lot of our listeners, right? Right. Uh, And David wrote in saying he also started to kind of listen with some trepidation, not expecting what to think. But he found himself uh, really moved by hearing about Ross's own personal faith, Mm. Um, finding that he and Ross actually had a lot more in common than he thought, even though they might disagree on certain doctrinal issues. Um, And David wrote that it was just important for him to remember that, you know, the church might be helped a lot if we did a lot more faith sharing in addition to the doctrinal debates that we sometimes have, Um, which I thought was a really good point. That was some of my favorite parts of the interview as well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing, David. Um, and we have some new patrons this week. So at the super fan level, we've got Christine Keough. At the ambassador level, we've got Kevin Hayworth, Christine Bainan, and Joe Caldwell, who is at the ambassador level and who is Creed Caldwell's mother, who joined us in studio last week. And at the VIP level is Daniel Morris. 
Yeah. Uh, so if you want to see the great video interview that we had with Cyrus, uh, you should become a patron. Any any level of giving will give mm-hmm. you access to those videos. Um, so you should head on over to patreon.com slash America Media. Okay, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? So this week I've got a consolation. Um, so one of the things uh, that, you know, on this podcast I really love doing is that, um, you know, I get to share my own faith experience, share the work that I do here, um, and kind of just to our listeners of color, like let them know that there's someone in this in the Catholic media world who is like them. Um, and I always enjoy when I like meet listeners or get, um, when I meet listeners at our live shows or when I hear from listeners saying that like, wow, there's someone just like me in this world. Um, but this week, my consolation is the In the Streetlights Bible, which is this sort of hip hop Bible app. So um, this is from their website. From Matthew to Revelations, poets, pastors, parents, and even children read scripture aloud over a hip hop score. Um, and it's it's pretty amazing. Uh, that's awesome. It's super amazing because one, it's over a hip hop score. So it had me there. Um, and it features like really dope music and people of color. So a lot of the voices are people who sound like me, who sound like people I grew up with in the Bronx. So for example, like when they're reading Luke and when the angel appears to Mary, it is a Latina woman reading this. And that is just so consoling for me to kind of see myself reflected in that and just really brings me closer to my faith in God. So that was really consoling for That's me this awesome. week. What, can you say the name of the African so yes, people can check it, it out? Yes, it is Streetlights Bible. And I will include it in our show notes, but you guys should all check it out. They just released the New Testament this week. So it's wow. pretty great. Yeah. So cool. What about you, Zach? Uh, so I I also have a consolation. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, I was in London for the royal wedding. I sat on the groom's side. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, we went to uh, this garden party, um, and I went in kind of cynical uh, about the royal wedding. You cynical? I know, no. surprise. Um, but as is typical with my consolations, uh, I, I was brought from my cynicism into hope. Uh, so, but I went along because you know, I love my girlfriend Amanda, and she was very into this. Uh, and we were there at the the party watching the wedding and uh, Bishop Curry got up to speak and I was floored. Um, I was, y- you know, actually in my physical reaction, God was in the goosebumps that uh, I felt listening to Bishop Curry speak because he just took this very simple gospel message, you know, that God is love. Right. And those who, who do not know love do not know God. And said it in such a way that in and in such a space that move that didn't remind me of God's love made me experience God's love in that moment in this place of cynicism uh and so that is my consolation this week thank you Bishop wow. Curry. that's really beautiful that's awesome Ashley what do you got uh I also have a consolation this week um so I think I've talked about on this show before uh, kind of having like a podcast problem where I'm like constantly listening to the podcast or NPR um it's just kind of like the soundtrack of my life um but recently I've found myself not listening to podcasts as much and just kind of like I don't know like I was chopping vegetables the other day and I was like oh I didn't I didn't like reach for my phone and turn on NPR I was like going on a walk and I was just like lost in my own thoughts and didn't put on a podcast um and that it's been really nice to like be okay with silence right recently um I think you know podcasts were kind of like a defense mechanism against like the negative unhealthy 
thoughts you can have when you are left <laughs> uh, to to your own devices. Um, so to be able to be in silence um, and and you know find God in prayer because I finally have given myself that time and space um, has been really nice. That's this good. week. Yeah, is so. that something a lot of people can relate to? If it's not a podcast, it's The Office <laughs> yeah. falling asleep to that. <laughs> yeah, no, I even I was I put on NPR as I was falling asleep the other night, and then like turned it off because I was like, oh, this is just it's too noisy. And mm-hmm. like, wow, so <laughs> exciting times. Deshwitical is brought to you by America Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by Sister Julia Walsh. Deshwit formation provided by Eloise Blondio this week. Eric is in Hawaii. Uh, engineering and design by Angelo Jesus Canta. You can follow us on Twitter at Deshwitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to Tully Mars. Send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at jesuitical.americamedia.org. And finally, this episode of Jesuitical is sponsored by Pope Francis, A Man of His Word, a documentary by Vim Vendors. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week.